Anyway, I'm going to have prayer, and we're going to get stuck into our first ever live Q&A. Thank you for joining. Father in heaven, what a privilege to have so many friends, Lord, and I know that a great many of my friends, people that I actually know that I have relationships with are tuning in, and that's a beautiful thing. But Father, there are so many out there too that I don't know and I've not yet met. And Father, what a symbol this is, that we are connected. There's this incredible family, some of it visible, but lots of it invisible. The great kingdom family, Father, all over the world. And I've already seen people saying, yeah, I'm from, you know, saying hi from New Zealand, saying hi from Europe. And um, Father, if they're in Europe, they're up really late and or really early, as the case may be. Um, Lord, what a privilege that we have to be your sons and daughters and if you are our Father, that makes us all brothers and sisters. And I want to thank you for the way that you've blessed us in the first week plus of DA with DA. And I pray, Father, that this would only continue to grow and that people would have just a strong sense of the beauty of Jesus, the desire of Jesus, the grandeur of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, and that the net effect of DA with DA would be that people fall more deeply in love with Jesus and that they appreciate how much love you have for us and you've shown us that love in Christ. And so, Father, be with us now as we spend some time together going through some questions and answers with regards to what we've covered up to this point. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, uh, before we get to our first question here, I have to ask, did you guys love the uh, surprise this morning? Did, was that a blessing to you to have Ty, you know, just sort of show up out of the blue? Um, and did anybody guess? I wonder if anybody guessed what the surprise might have been. I don't think there were any way, any way you could have easily known, but I thought that was really fun. And it was very cool to have Ty this morning in my living room. Um, and then we spent the next couple hours talking together as well. It's really beautiful. I, I love him. He's such a wonderful man. And it's a real privilege to be involved in ministry with him alongside him. Um, okay, so here we go. I'm going to start with my first question. This one's from uh, Timote Goshev, or it might be Goshev. I might be mispronouncing that. But Timote Goshev asks this question. He says, when presenting a non-Adventist Christian, and it might be different for non-Christians, he says, with the desire of ages as a reading recommendation, the moment they Google the author, they are suspicious with the credibility of Ellen White as a prophet and thus of her writings. David, if you had to give them five reasons to give her a chance and read the book, what would they be? Okay, this is a great question. And it's a great question because it's such a real question, such an authentic question. The truth of the matter is, is that one of the upsides of living in the information age is that information is immediately you know, just reflexively available to us. You know, how quickly, how easily do we now say, uh, Google it? Have you Googled it? Why don't you Google it? I mean, this is something that we couldn't have even imagined that we would be saying, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. What, what would that even mean? Google it? But now we just have so much information at our fingertips, which is great. The problem is, one of the problems with the democratization of information, and again, I think there are far more upsides than there are downsides, but it does create a kind of level playing field. The internet and social media have created a level playing field where outlets that are more credible outlets now have a kind of even footing with just anybody that has a server and a keyboard and a computer. And so people can just start to put up all kinds of crazy stuff. And I remember in the very early days of the internet, 
I was still doing a lot of public evangelism, um, preaching evangelistic meetings from town to town. These would typically be sort of four to six week long meetings. And we'd go into a church, we'd go into a town and we'd preach. And as a part of the preaching, we would invariably get toward the end of the evangelistic meeting where we would talk about the spirit of prophecy, the gift of prophecy, and Ellen White would come up and we would talk about the relationship of the Seventh-day Adventist Church to Ellen White and Ellen White to the church and the ongoing ministry of the spiritual, the gifts of the spirit, spiritual gifts. And without exception, without exception, somebody would Google Ellen White and early on, and I don't know if anybody else out there can remember this, but early on, when the internet was still kind of the wild, wild west, right, it's become much more aesthetically pleasing and it's a, a little bit more of a refined experience now. But early on in those early internet days, man, there was almost nothing positive about Ellen White on the internet. Like, there was a dozen negative or very negative sites and almost nothing positive. Now, fortunately, uh, since that time, the White Estate and, and other ministries have done their best to sort of create, um, and things like Wikipedia have helped to sort of level out uh, the radicalization that's a product of the democratization of information. So um, I remember a, a site had this 101 reasons why Ellen White is not a prophet or something like that. 101 reasons. And it would have been three or four cities in a row over the course of a year where some mean, you know, well-meaning person would walk up to me in the course of my evangelistic meetings and hand me a stack of papers that they had printed off, and it was this same article going through, oh, I remember what it was, 101 times Ellen White contradicts the Bible. And uh, I remember one of the times, the person that gave it to me was a very sincere person, and I was like, hey, listen, let's go through these. Uh, they had been coming to the meetings, they were loving what they learned, they were really convicted about the Sabbath, very passionate about what was happening in the meetings, and so I said, hey, listen, to be honest, this is like the second or third time someone's giving, given me this document. Um, I've not gone through all of it, but I'm open. You're a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. You take scripture seriously. I take scripture seriously. So if Ellen White is truly, consistently, uh, you know, unambiguously contradicting the Bible, then, you know, she should be discarded. And you have to, I had to take that sort of open posture. Anyway, long story short, we sat down and we started going through the nature, or everyone, one by one, bam, bam, bam. And what we found about the nature of the contradictions was that very often it was an oversimplification or a mischaracterization or even a misquotation in some instances of the actual thing that Ellen White had said. Now, fortunately for me, by that point, I'd been a follower of Jesus for the better part of probably seven or eight years. I had read lots and lots of Ellen White and so I had enough familiarity to be able to say, yeah, that doesn't sound right. And I don't think she said that. And we could actually go back and look through, um, at the time it was the Ellen White CD-ROM. Now you can do it online. And we would compare the charge against Ellen White with the actual content of what she said. And happily in that situation, um, the person themselves began to see, and I think we got down to like number 21 or 22 or something. And the person said, okay, I've, I've seen enough. I've heard enough. These are not good faith objections. These are not good faith objections because my recommendation, and this is getting right to the heart of Timothy's question, my recommendation is very simple, right? It's Jesus' recommendation. By their fruits, you shall know them. 
So the invitation that I give to people about Ellen White, first of all, I don't hard sell the prophecy thing. And I think that's unwise. I don't think we should just come at somebody and say, Ellen White was a prophet. It sounds weird. It sounds cultic. It sounds non-canonical. It just has, it just, it's not the way forward. What I like to say is, listen, I've read many of her books and many of her books I've read many times. And what I can say in all transparency and sincerity is that when I read her books, it increases my appreciation and my understanding of Jesus and of scripture. So if it's increasing my understanding and increasing my appreciation and increasing all of those sort of Christian graces, the fruit of the spirit that we long for and hope for, well, then all I can say is, and I cannot speak for anyone else, I love grapefruit, right? I love grapefruit. I'm a big grapefruit person. Maybe you don't like grapefruit, but I, I'm going to tell you, man, I love grapefruit and they taste really good. And when I eat them, I feel good and I love the way they taste in my mouth and they're especially good cold. So all I can say to you is try it. Try the grapefruit. See if you like it. Maybe grapefruit's a bad example because uh, a lot of people don't like grapefruit. Maybe I should say something like oranges or strawberries or bananas or something. But my recommendation to people, Timothy, and I know this isn't exactly what you asked for, a list of five things to say. Um, I'd have to sort of off the you know top of my head, I would say, uh, number one, um, Many hundreds of thousands, millions of people have been seriously benefited and blessed by her writings. Okay, that's number one. Number two, by their fruits, you shall know them. Number three, uh, just give it a try. Give it a try. See how it tastes to you. See how it feels to you. And by the way, the books that I typically recommend are either Steps to Christ, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, Desire of Ages, or Christ Object Lessons. Those are the initial, I think those are the great books to start with. I especially like Steps to Christ and Thoughts from thoughts from the Mount of Blessing because they're so short. They're easily accessible. They're easy to read. Um, so that's three reasons. Um, number four, I would say she was an inveterate follower of Jesus. She was a pas passionate follower of Jesus. This cannot be denied. Um, and I think we have something to learn from people who have been lifelong followers of Jesus. And uh, the fifth reason, I don't know, I can't come up with one just off the top of my head, but the short version, all of that sort of narrows down to just give it a try read Steps to Christ, read Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, have the Bible in one hand, say, you know, the Sermon on the Mount if it's Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, and, the, and then have Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. So you're looking at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you're looking at Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, and then just ask yourself the question, is this increasing or decreasing my understanding? Is this giving me a greater appreciation for the sacrifice, life, death, and ministry of Jesus, or a decreased appreciation? Truthfully, lots of people are just weirded out about the idea of a modern prophet, and justifiably so. I mean, there's a lot of weirdness out there. And so when I think people, I think when people come with concerns or uh, they're a little edgy about it, I think we should be sympathetic, absolutely sympathetic. Don't make the hard sell on the prophetic ministry of Jesus. Um, and then I would say, yeah, I think that's basically the short answer. So Timothy, that's my advice to you. Um, I see Hannah is saying, when I first became Adventist, I was handed a bunch of her books, but no Bible. So that's one of the reasons I didn't really read her books. Great point, Hannah. Great point. We've, we've all had or heard about that experience. I shouldn't say we've all had it, but all of us have heard about, you know, the proverbial Ellen White. I was beat over the head by Ellen White. And there are, to be fair, a great many people that have misused her, but that's not something that's, you know, idiosyncratically you know, or proprietarily Ellen White. I mean, people do that with scripture. 
People do that with all of the prophets. And so, fair point. Um, that's my answer, and I hope it's helpful. Taste and see that she is good, right? Just taste and see that the writings that she had lead to a better understanding and appreciation of how good God is. Um, okay, the next question here is from Dana Ellis Bearden. And uh, Dana asks, in the chapter, The Chosen People, okay, got it here. She's quoting now, while the Jews desired the advent of the Messiah, they had no true conception of his mission. They did not seek redemption from sin, but deliverance from the Romans, end quote. My question, says Dana, is how did they manage to lose sight of the original promise, the promise God made to Adam and Eve? At what point did the desire for the Messiah to be a conqueror deliverer from earthly governments come into being? Okay, this is a very good question, and it's a question that requires a little bit of the telling of the story of Judaism, and this will be a, a significantly truncated telling of that history, but it will be helpful to understand how the rise of a misunderstanding of Jesus' messianic mission and identity came into being. Well, you asked the question about the original promise back in the days of Adam and Eve, and to try and compress you know, the original promise from Adam and Eve all the way to the arrival of the Messiah would be pushing, you know, several thousand years of human history, compressing that all together. That would be a tall order. But I think what I can do justice to is to talk about what scholars refer to as Second Temple Judaism. And we've mentioned just a little bit about this in the series so far. So, of course, one of the desires of God was to dwell among his people. So this is Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, where God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And God then gives Moses a pattern, a pattern of a, of a tripartite. That word just means three-part home or sanctuary or house. There was the outer courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. Well, you are aware that for a significant period of time, for decades, that sanctuary was a mobile sanctuary, right? It was a temporary structure that was moved, especially in the wilderness wanderings, from place to place to place to place. Well, remember now, I'm going to bring another stream of thought in here. Remember that when Matthew describes the history of the Old Testament, he says that from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the captivity in Babylon were 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon to Messiah were 14 generations. Okay, so each of these is a discrete and important chapter that really summarizes, in a way, what happened in Israel's history in each of those three chapters. So from Abraham to David, you have, essentially, to simplify, the promise of the promised land. God said, I'll give you a land that your, your descendants will be as the stars of heaven. They'll be like the sand of the sea. I'm going to give you land. And so the promise was made to Abraham about land and descendants, and by the time we get to David, that's the first chapter, right? 14 generations from David, from Abraham to David, we have the, um, the Israelites have now taken possession of that land and they have who would go on to be the, um, the quintessential king, the quintessential monarch of Israel. Now, again, we're skipping over a lot here because God's plan and intention for Israel was not to have a monarch, but at this point they do. And the Davidic kingdom, David was a man after God's own heart. The Davidic kingdom was, in the minds of many Jews, the height of Israel's prosperity, influence. Some might say the Solomonic kingdom, so you can just roll those two together and say, 
Between David and Solomon, that was the height, that was the summit in Israel's own sense of their history of what God's plan and hope and intention was for Israel. Okay, so far so good. The problem is, is that after you have Saul, the first king of Israel, then David, the second king of Israel, then Solomon. After Solomon, of course, Israel is divided between the ten tribes and the two tribes, Israel and Judah. Well, now we get into really the the nuts and bolts of the Old Testament, and what ends up happening is, is that you do have the occasional king that is doing what's right in the sight of Yahweh, that he's following the covenant, but for every Reformation, as Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, you had a deeper apostasy. So a small reformation, a deeper apostasy, small reformation, deeper apostasy, etc. So what ends up happening is that eventually, because of this, the words that we've used in desire of it, in our DA with DA is insularity and insubordination. Insularity, cutting themselves off from the surrounding nations, not having a positive evangelistic uh, enterprise toward the surrounding nations, which was God's intent, right, in the original Abrahamic promise but also insubordination was basically unfaithfulness to the covenant. And so this happens with Israel, and then it eventually also happens with Judah. Israel goes into Assyrian captivity. Captivity is probably even too strong, or not strong enough of a word there. They were basically destroyed by the Assyrians, and then intermarried, and Israel's basically never heard from again. In the case of Judah, they go into Babylonian captivity, and the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Okay, this happens under the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, and this is described in, well, it's anticipated in prophecies in Jeremiah, but then it's actually described in prophecies like in Daniel. And so the temple was destroyed, the city was laid waste, and Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, took a large number of Jewish people away to Babylon. And this is the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, and this is the backdrop against which, for example, the book of Daniel is written. So what ends up happening is, is after Babylon passes off the scene and the Medes and the Persians come on the scene, the uh, Persian king Artaxerxes was sympathetic to the monotheistic. He basically said, look, you're not our slaves. You can go back, rebuild your city, rebuild your temple. And this is described um, in various books, Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, etc. in the Old Testament. So there was no temple for roughly a century. But when the Jews return back to Jerusalem, to their city that had been laid waste um, more than a hundred years before by Nebuchadnezzar, they rebuilt the temple. Okay, now here's the, that was a long explanation to get to to the answer. When the temple was rebuilt, what ends up happening now is there is a very, very strong psychological, spiritual, moral, cultural motivation to never go into captivity again or anything like it, right? And so what happens is you have now, if the insularity knob was turned up to say eight in the times of the Solomonic temple, now it's turned up to 11, 11 out of 10. And the desire to be completely separate from, not intermarry with, not interconnect with, not spend any time fraternizing with them. Now you have this very strong two-part reality, Jews and Gentiles us and them. And that's coupled with, that's the insularity part, that's coupled with a really strong desire to insulate even the possibility of the 
the, the possibility of, a, of something like the Babylonian captivity again. So no idolatry. So what ends up happening is, is you get layers upon layers upon layers of man-made rules that are designed to insulate people from ever breaking Torah or breaking covenant. Okay? So as soon as you start adding all of these layers that were designed, you know, ostensibly to protect people, they ended up becoming an end in themselves. And this often happens in religious enterprises. The thing that's supposed to point to something, the thing that's supposed to insulate from something, becomes the thing itself. And that's what happened. What ended up happening was, is that the law itself became the point. And the uh, separation from other nations itself became the point. And the insularity itself became the point, such that when Jesus arrives in the New Testament and we have the sort of first century Judaism described in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you had really four kinds of different groups of people that were managing the incredible cognitive dissonance that came from being the chosen people of God, but having had your history basically be a history of uninterrupted subjugations to other powers, right? Whether it was Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or now Rome. Right? And so you had people that were dealing with that in different ways. The Sadducees dealt with it in a certain way. They basically became like the Jewish aristocracy, and they, they were in close with the Romans. The Romans used them effectively as almost like vassal rulers. Uh, that would be the sort of, if you can't beat them, join them perspective, was like the Sadducean perspective. You had the Pharisaical perspective, which was the like radical... Um, patriotism, nationalism perspective, and they viewed the Romans and Gentiles generally, but especially the Romans, with tremendous contempt in the way that they navigated this sort of um, cognitive dissonance was by sort of drawing further and further and further into rabbinical teaching and into those idiosyncratic Jewish elements. And uh, this is on display uh, full display in the New Testament. Many instances of this in the Gospels. You also had other groups like the um, Essenes and the Zealots that were dealing with the cognitive dissonance in their own way. But basically, by the time Jesus arrives, there's so much hatred. And Ellen White actually says this. You might remember in one of the early chapters. She says, it was not a love for God that prompted much of the religion of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, but it was actually a hatred of the Romans. Right? It was a hatred, and any religion that's motivated by hate is a religion that's ultimately going nowhere. Right? And so when Jesus shows up, the expectation of Messiah is that he will be a sort of composite of the charisma of Saul, the you know, warrior-like spirit of David, and the wisdom of Solomon. And above all else, they saw the Messiah as being a conquering figure that would swiftly and uh, soundly defeat the Romans and elevate Israel nationally, you know, to the pinnacle of the nations. Interestingly, when Jesus began to perform many of his miracles in the Gospels, those miracles were seen by the crowds and even by the disciples themselves as fundamentally fitting into the narrative of Jesus as conqueror, right? So, like, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes. Ah, this will be great, on the field of battle, we will, we will be so light and dexterous and quick in our movements because we won't have to bring provisions. Jesus can heal the blind. He can cleanse lepers. He can even raise the dead. And 
Jesus was certainly a mystery. I mean, the disciples often didn't understand his sayings. He didn't, he didn't conduct himself in the way that people thought the Messiah would conduct himself. But insofar as they did understand the mission of Jesus, they were attracted to follow him, the disciples. But insofar as they didn't understand it, they actually interpreted his miracles through the lens. In fact, a great, a great, great, great text to this effect that just lets you know how thorough was the misunderstanding of the disciples is found right in Acts chapter 1. So just think about this. This is after the disciples have spent three years with Jesus. It's after the crucifixion, which no nobody conceived of a crucified Messiah was like a square circle. It was completely nonsensical. It was foolish. It was internally incoherent. So they, they didn't conceive of the mission of Jesus. They didn't conceive of the teachings of Jesus. They certainly did not conceive of the crucifixion of Jesus, and then the resurrection, like no one saw that coming, okay? So after all of that, after all of that, when we come down to Acts chapter 1, absolutely incredible, I'm reading now in verse 4, and this just gives you a little window into how thorough this misunderstanding of Messiah's identity and mission and the nature of Messiah was. It says, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse six. Now look, this is the question that they're just waiting. On the tip of their tongue with bated breath, they can't wait to ask this question. Therefore, when they had come together, they said to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? right? Like that's still at the forefront of their mind after three years of teaching all the parables, all the healings, all the miracles, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the question that they just cannot wait to get an answer to is, is this now the moment? Is, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And you can just imagine how potentially deflated Jesus might have been in that moment to realize, and of course he knew them better than they knew themselves at this point, of course. So he knows that they're not going to get it. Now, when the Holy Spirit's poured out on the day of Pentecost and the penny, as the Australians would say, the penny drops for them. They begin to get it. He knows that's coming, but listen to his answer. This is in verses seven and eight of the same chapter. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power. And I imagine that when, when those words were said, they were like, yes, this is the moment right? The promise. You shall receive power, but it was a totally different kind of power than they had expected or hoped for. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 sure sounds like a conquering passage, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like an outward growth that is a series of sort of outwardly concentric conquerings. He says, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. Of course, the power that fell upon them was a power that finally and fully persuaded them about the nature and the mission and the message of the Messiah. But the point here is simply this. The question that Dana asks is, how how did they lose track? Well, it happened incrementally. It happened fractionally over centuries and decades and particularly with the destruction of the Solomonic Temple, the rebuilding of the Second Temple, the the synagogue culture, the um, increase of insularity, and the desire to not in any way be set up for 
uh, a further captivity or idolatry set them up big time. Plus, they hated the Romans, right? They just couldn't deal with the cognitive dissonance that we're the chosen people of God, but yet our history is a, basically a story of uninterrupted subjugations to pagan powers. And in the ancient world, when one nation or one tribe conquered another nation or tribe, that was basically a sign that their God was more powerful. And so all of that lines up for a giant misunderstanding about the nature and mission of the Messiah. And that's where we were this morning. This morning in that incredible chapter, the Passover visit, remember that when Jesus is sitting among the rabbis there described in Luke chapter 2, he's asking penetrating questions, and remember Ty brought this point out, specifically about the nature, the self-giving self-sacrificing nature of the Messiah's mission. And she says that the rabbis didn't know how to answer these questions. They feigned that they were testing him. But in fact, the idea of a self-sacrificial Messiah, of a crucified suffering Messiah, didn't fit anywhere into their sort of frame of reference. And so Jesus was asking very purposeful, very penetrating questions that was very much like oil to their water. It was a square to their circle. Right, it, They just had nowhere to put it. And um, even the disciples, after years with Jesus and uh, watching all the miracles that took place, they just didn't, they didn't get it. Even after the resurrection, they didn't get it. So hopefully that helps with the answer. Great question, um, Dana. Uh, here, Sabria says, misinterpreted the scripture that applied to the second coming. They passed over the text of Christ coming in humiliation it did not fit with their conception of how they wanted him to come. And that's exactly right. Great. I'm so glad you brought that up. The version that they had of the Messiah flattered, Ellen White actually uses that word, flattered their own pride and national pride and ambition. Great point. And by the way, this is something we have to be on continual guard against. And maybe I'll just say a brief word about that. In our own theology of and hope for regarding the second coming, we need to be very careful that we are not committing a sin that is analogous to the sin that was committed there, interpreting the return of Messiah in ways that flatter our own ambitions and spiritual pride, right? I have said before, and I stand by this, we need to be sure that our hope and our strong desire for the return of Messiah cannot be born out of a desire for the punishment of the wicked it has to be born out of a desire for maximal salvation. Let God handle the punishment of the wicked, right? That's, that's God's business, right? Let God take care of that. Our desire for the return of Jesus should be like, Lord, wait a little longer, just a little longer, because we want maximal salvation. And too often we tell a very facile, very self-congratulatory version of the second coming of Jesus that basically makes it sound like Jesus is going to come back at any day to rescue people that look, think, act, and behave just like I do. Well, that's only a stone's throw away from the very same kind of interpretation that the first century Jewish leaders were putting on the return of Messiah. So that's an easy pit to fall into, and so I'm so glad that Sabria there brought up the point about ambition and pride. Spot on. Okay, CJ Girl says, yes, thank you. May we, not particip may we not anticipate fulfillment of prophecy for the purpose of punishing others and rewarding us. Exactly, exactly. What we want is maximal salvation, maximal justice, maximal fairness. That's what we're after as followers of Jesus. 
And this might sound a little weird coming from an Adventist, but I do think we would be best off to just leave the timetable with God. We know we have the great prophecies of Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Revelation 13. We know, we get it. But too often we're willing to split hairs and say, yeah, it's going to happen in whatever, 2020 or the year, you know, Y2K or whatever. Um, I think we should just let God deal with his own timetable and we should just say, Lord Jesus, while you tarry, may we be working for maximal salvation and maximal positive representation of who and what you are and uh, not tell this sort of flattering, self-congratulatory story about how Jesus is coming back to save just us because we're the remnant, we're the chosen ones, and all the rest of those sorry people are going to be finally lost and punished. It's super unattractive, it's super unbiblical, and it's not at all helpful evangelistically. Okay, great stuff. Um, let me take a drink of water here. Tonvel says, so many family members who are not believers. Exactly, exactly. I'm in that same boat, 100%. I want to see them become followers of Jesus. Excellent. Okay, then I got a really great question here from a, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine who was one of the members of the last church I pastored, Megan Johnson. And it's quite a long question, but I'm just going to read through as much as I need to in order to give a feel for the shape of the question. It's a really, really good and thoughtful question. I know and love Megan, and she's a really thoughtful person. And so listen to this question, and um, tell me if you haven't asked yourself some version of this same question. I'll bet you have. Um, Megan writes, in chapter 5, we saw that Jesus was without blemish. Quoting from the third paragraph of chapter 5, quote, His physical structure was not marred by any defect. His body was strong and healthy, page 50. All good so far, she says. In chapter 1, we are reminded that God is acquainted with our trials and sympathizes with our griefs, page 24. And also he endured every trial which, to which we are subject, page 24 as well. Um, he was tempted in all points as we are. My question is, if Jesus was physically strong and healthy up until his death, on what basis is he able to fully understand and sympathize with sick and disabled people? The day-to-day -day lived experience of the chronically sick and or disabled tends to be worlds apart from those who are physically and mentally healthy. She says, ableism is rife. From my experience, physically healthy people often struggle with empathy. Not always, just usually. That's because it's hard, maybe impossible, to fully understand what you haven't personally experienced or endured. Yet Jesus was and is different. So if Jesus in his holy perfection experienced no illness or disability as we know it, how is he that he is able to empathize with and minister to the vast numbers of permanently disabled and or chronically ill people of today? Well, first of all, I think we can say that's an outstanding question. And I'm so happy to see my dear friend, Cassandra, chiming in here. Cassandra, you, I love, I'm just going to read what you say here. I, I worry we may use this as a reason to disconnect from the ungodly because Jesus is coming soon anyway. Okay, I thought you were going to be addressing this, Cassandra. Um, the reason that I thought Cassandra might be saying something there of, um, in response to this question is, I don't think Cassandra would mind me saying this, she has cerebral palsy. And uh, I've known Cassandra since 
Um, oh, I've known her about 10 years now, Cass. Is that right? Um, and she's a dear friend. I absolutely love her. And she is certainly someone who could speak to Megan's question about having a disability that, let's be honest, at one level, Jesus cannot relate to the disabilities that um, Megan is describing or, for example, Cassandra's cerebral palsy. So I want to start by saying, outstanding question. These are exactly the right kinds of questions because at the end of the day, Jesus is only going to be persuasive as our example and as our savior to the degree that we believe that he can sympathize with us and empathize with us, that he can enter into our thoughts and our feelings and our struggles. And I think the short answer here is, I think there's a variety of ways to answer this. And one of them is I think we have to exercise considerable humility right at the outset and admit that there are a great many things about the exemplary ministry of Jesus that we cannot answer to your absolute satisfaction. I mean, let's make it even easier. How could Jesus relate to the specific and idiosyncratic temptations of an older man, for example? He died very young. How could Jesus relate to the specific and idiosyncratic temptations of a woman? Jesus was, after all, masculine. He was a male. And so it's a great question that Megan is asking, but it's not only a question that has to do with what she calls ableism or physical health. Jesus was what he was, right? And, and here we come up against the limitations to some degree of representation. And man, I might get myself into a little trouble here. I hope I don't. But we do live in a time right now where there is a lot of emphasis on identity. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but it can lead to what I think are some maybe misunderstandings about at least representation when it comes to divine representation. So, for example, um, ever since the civil rights movement, um, I've done a lot of listening and reading to Martin Luther King uh, Jr. over the years, and we know that in the wake of the mid to late 1950s and early 1960s, as you get into the 70s, 70s and 80s, you have an increased number of black Americans, African Americans that were finding themselves in positions of governance and that were saying, hey, I'm going to be a representative. I'm going to be a congressman. I'm going to be a senator. I'm going to be a mayor. I'm going to be a governor. And that's absolutely awesome. Incredibly awesome. And the reason it's awesome is they would bring an experience or a perspective to those roles that frankly needed to be heard needed to be heard, and I think continues to need to be heard. Having said that, I do think while there's a giant upside to representation for somebody that kind of looks like me, thinks like me, acts like me, is from the same neighborhood that I'm from, I do think that we also have to remember that we are individuals and we, are, we have a fundamental commonality in our human experience. When it says that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, that means that Jesus was tempted in basically the three areas under which the umbrella of all temptation, all temptation come under this umbrella, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay? Someone who's a recovering heroin addict, for example, could say, Jesus can't relate to what I'm going through. And in the strictest sense, they would be right. Jesus never experienced the pangs of withdrawal from a, a, a long-term heroin addiction. Fair point. Um, Megan raises a great point here. Jesus did not know what it was like to be an amputee. 
Jesus did not know what it was like to be tempted, uh, let's say, with same-sex attraction. I mean, at least as far as we know, there's no indication in Scripture that he was tempted with that. So one of the dangers would be to say, if Jesus cannot relate to me in every particular, that would be to take the sort of modern political version and say, wait, 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 wait. I need someone that's not only my color, not only my gender, not only my age, not only my ethnic background, they, not only my economic strata in order to represent me. Listen, let's be fair. There is some truth to that. There is some truth to that because the representation grows out of a shared experience. I get that. Totally understand that. But the other side of it is there are experiences that are common to humanity. In fact, just saying that phrase brought to my mind 2 Corinthians, is it chapter 10, verse 13? Is that right? Let me just flip there. Uh, I'm in Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Okay, listen to this. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to mankind. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now that's a good translation, not a bad translation. Let me just read you that. I'm just quickly looking here. Let me just go 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read that in a slightly more modern translation because I want you to feel the shape of what's being said there by Paul. The New King James is good, but let's try it in... Let's try it in something like the NLT. I, I don't know that off. I'm just pulling it up the top of my head. We'll see if it's good. Okay, here we go. Okay, here we go. Listen to this. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Okay, brilliant. I love that translation. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Now, somebody's going to protest and say, hey, that's not true. Hey, that, that, that's not true at all. I have a very specific idiosyncratic, I am uh, tempted with same-sex attraction, and it has these, you know, specifics related to it. I am tempted, I am tempted, I am, okay, and this is Megan's point. By the way, I'm not in any way being dismissive of Megan's question. I think it's an outstanding question. How can Jesus relate to those that are, dissimilar to himself. Well, only in this regard, I think, that again, all temptations have a fundamental commonality. All struggles have a fundamental commonality. And I think we live, and I hope I don't upset because I'm not trying to upset. I think we live in a world right now where if somebody is not almost exactly like me in every particular, that he or she or they cannot really adequately represent me. I'm not... I'm not persuaded that's the way forward. I think that the human experience is a shared experience. And that in so far... Now, first of all, let me just back away here for a moment because I'm speaking sort of into the situation. Let me just back up here and say the sort of simple theological answer is this. Jesus was God enough to sympathize and empathize. He was an all points tempted like as we are, which Megan quotes in her question such that God was satisfied. Now, just think this through. God was satisfied that the plan of salvation was adequate to the test. Okay, I want to say that again. 
God was satisfied that the plan of salvation, so Jesus as a male who was roughly 30 years old, who lived in a certain time period. I mean, there you go. I mean, the temptations of modernity right now, as somebody who's a father of two teenage children, I can tell you, there are temptations that are idiosyncratic to modernity that Jesus did not face. But he faced them in principle. He faced them in the, under the umbrella of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everybody struggles. And, and I know that that's a hard thing for some people to hear. Maybe the C.S. Lewis illustration will be helpful here. Maybe it won't. But I, I've always loved the C.S. Lewis illustration where he describes people that are in a waiting room at the dentist's office and they all have a toothache. So you have, you know, three, four, five, six people in the waiting room. They all have a toothache. And Lewis says this. He says, you could say that the total amount of pain in that waiting room is 6x, right? Because you have six people and their pain is all x. And so you could say the total pain in the room is 6x. But then Lewis makes this extremely insightful point. He says, but nobody's experiencing 6x. Everybody's only experiencing x, right? So, so, but there is a great exception to this, by the way. In Isaiah 53, it says he bore our sorrows. He is acquainted with our grief. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Um, there was one being who was big enough and who had shoulders broad enough to speak to and to feel the throb, the throb of all of the um, aggregated pain of humanity. And he did, okay? So in answer, this is a sort of roundabout way of answering the question, but I would say this. Jesus is acquainted, Jesus is adequately acquainted with the idiosyncratic temptations and trials and struggles that you face to be your example. And I guess this is, one way to say this is when you read scripture, can you relate to Jesus? Can you be like, wow, I... I see why he behaved in that way, and I understand. If, if that's true, then he can certainly relate to you, right? God's infinite capacity is such that even though Jesus was constrained by the um, limitations of being a male at a certain time, who lived a certain age, in a certain context, in a certain setting, I do not think it... Yes, Laura says Christ experienced 6X. That's right. He experienced, you know, many billions X. So I love your question, Megan. I think it's exactly the right question. And I think there is no way to specifically give a sort of formulaic answer as to how and why we can be sure that Jesus relates. What we can do is cling to these great Bible promises like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and Hebrews chapter 2 and 4 that describe Jesus being tempted in all points like as we are. He was tempted in the wilderness uh, he understood what it was to be a human being. And while we live in a time and in a day and age right now where there's this emphasis on maximizing dissimilarity in the human experience, I think that the biblical answer is there is a fundamental commonality in the human experience. And that commonality can be summarized as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life under the larger umbrella of sin and selfishness. We are all tempted to this. And there are a great many people who have adversities and struggles and trials that you and I cannot comprehend. 
I don't understand, for example, the unique pain that someone who is wrestling with same-sex attraction feels. I, I cannot relate to that. That doesn't mean I can't sympathize, I can't enter in, because I also know at some level what it's like to wrestle with desires and to struggle with the temptations to inappropriate sexual behavior and to respond um, to God and say, God, I need help. I need you to come down and rescue me. And I just have to believe that Jacob's ladder extends all the way down to the earth. And there's not a person, there's not a soul, there's not a situation, there's not a struggle, there's not a context that God, at least in the broadest of strokes, cannot relate to. And um, uh, that might not be a totally satisfactory answer, Megan. And I know you, and I know you have a heart of, of real sincerity and passion, but I think we just have to trust that if the plan of salvation worked, if God could look at it and say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and at the resurrection, Jesus could rise and resurrect, the, it must mean that the plan of salvation worked, which must mean Jesus is not only our sinless substitute, he must also be our sympathetic savior. He has to be both our sinless substitute and our sympathetic savior. And so my, my pastoral advice to you, Megan, and others who share your, your situation is to say, um, I just believe, I accept by faith that Jesus can relate and Jesus can sympathize and Jesus can give those ways of escape from the specific idiosyncratic and tailor-made temptations that you're experiencing right? I'll just claim that promise here. But with the temptation, God will make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it, to carry it, to endure it, and even by the grace of God to overcome it. Great question, Megan. I love the question, and I hope you find this answer at some level um, satisfactory. By the way, I've seen um, my dear friend, um, Michelle, you know who you are, uh, uh, somebody that I know wrestles with some of the things I was just talking about there and, and seeing the praise that's coming from her uh, lets me know that, that she is believing and entering in by faith to the fact that Jesus can empathize with her and save her even in the unique situation in which he finds herself. And all of our situations are unique. That's the truth. All of our situations are unique. And so um, great question, Megan. Really good. Let me just read a few answers on that or a few uh, thoughts on that. Um, uh, L-W-E-Q-S-T here says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Excellent. Quoting Jeremiah 29, Keith Brown says, in the same way that he saw the needs of his mother long before the time, he can take care of all of our needs. Great point. Wispy Pillows, who I like that, says, plus he knew our pain and temptations as he decided with God for the plan of salvation. That's a great point. He knew it in advance. And, and there you are, Michelle. God bless you, sister. I'm, I've got your phone number. I am gonna call you. We do need to catch up. It's been too long. Um, I hope you don't mind me using you as an example there, sister. I, I know that this, uh, anyway, I'm just really proud of you. Um, okay, I, I hope that was helpful at some level. Okay, let's take another question here. Um, Peggy Wagley says, chapter eight, that was our chapter this morning, page 78, last paragraph. It says, was the sacrificial service just another act in the priest's and rabbi's play? Was there never a who in their minds for the lamb they sacrificed? It took 12-year-old Jesus to open their eyes to this realization. Well, Peggy, I appreciate your incredulity here. Um, <laughs> I share your incredulity. I, I, I'm with you. 
At the same time, I want to say that the answer is yes. I mean, clearly, the minds of many of the religious leaders, and by the way, not all of them, don't forget this. Ty reminded us this morning that when we get to the book of Acts, Luke makes it abundantly clear. He says, many of the Pharisees and priests believed. So think of that soil as a little harder, a little denser. So those seeds that immediately sprung up in the lives of people like Mary and others who just saw Jesus, Zacchaeus just saw Jesus and responded, Peter, James, and John just responded to Jesus. There were many even of the religious leaders who eventually responded to Jesus, but the soil was so hardened by a perversion of Judaism, by a misunderstanding of what God had revealed to the Jewish nation that it just took longer for those seeds. Now, I'm not saying that all of them came around. Of course, many of them didn't, but some of them did. And the short answer is when we are steeped in misunderstandings of who God is, what his will is, what his word is, um, you know, the, the, the scales don't always fall from people's eyes instantaneously. It takes people a while to open up. Nicodemus, thanks Chad for pointing that out. Nicodemus being a great example. Great to see Chad Stewart on here. Dear brother, dear friend. Um, yeah, I see several people saying Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. Exactly. Those seeds that were planted in John chapter 3, I have a sermon that I preached years ago on John chapter 3, the interaction with Nicodemus. Those seeds that were sown that night did not bear immediate fruit. In fact, if anything, Nicodemus was very resistant to Jesus' overtures and his suggestions. You know, he, he says with you know, absolute incredulity, do you want me to crawl inside of my mother's womb? You know, that kind of a thing. But when he ruminated, when he thought it, by the way, I wasn't going to say this. How many of you out there have seen um, any of the first season of The Chosen, or maybe all of The Chosen series? Um, anybody else out there seen them? I want to say this. Yeah, okay, I see lots of hearts going up. That series is incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I, I want to say, typically when I have watched portrayals of Jesus or of the New Testament or those kinds of things, I look at it and I'm just like, yeah, nah. In fact, I actually resist them. I never saw Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ because, you know, I've just spent so much time with Jesus and his word that I have a picture that's been framed over the course of 25 years of walking with Jesus, reading, studying, learning. I just have a picture in my mind of what Jesus is like, and I'm very reluctant to let a powerful medium such as a movie or a television show start informing what Jesus has shown me by his spirit. And so I've always had a bit of an arm's length relationship with these portrayals of Jesus because for me, they're just off the mark. And uh, some of them I just said, I'm not even going to look at it. I don't even want that in my brain. I don't want that to be the scene or the scenes that come to my mind when I'm reading Matthew 26, 27, etc., However, I had a friend reach out to me and say, hey, I know how you feel about these, um, you know, movies that portray Jesus and series that portray Jesus, but just check out The Chosen. And uh, I said, okay, sure enough. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to give it a look. And anyway, I ended up watching, is there 10 of those, babe, or 12 of those? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. There's, there's 10 or 12 or something of them. And all I can say is, and I don't want to sound blasphemous here, but... 
the way that that person, the way that that man plays Jesus is the first picture, the first portrait, the first depiction I have personally ever seen of someone playing Jesus that made Jesus at least as attractive to me as what the mental picture that I had in my own mind formulated over years of studying with scripture. And I didn't find that they were competing visions. I found that they were complementary. Or eight, eight, apparently there's eight episodes. I mean, and by the way, I'm not foisting this upon you. I'm not saying you have to have the same perspective on the chosen actor that plays Jesus that I did. But all I can say is, that, that was just so good. And not just Jesus, but the people that play Nicodemus and Matthew. And It's an extremely well done series, worth your time, worth your effort, and also supporting independent Christian filmmaking is a very, very good idea. But what I, where I was going with this is, one of the very cool things that they do in the scripting of The Chosen is they tell the story of Jesus in a way that is almost exactly like Ellen White paints it in Desire of Ages. In fact, several times in the watching of the first eight episodes of Chosen, I thought to myself, there's no way, this guy, I think his name is Dallas, is the creator. Is that right, Ben? I think his name is Dallas. There's no way this guy has not been exposed to the Desire of Ages. He read this book. Because the way that, that Nicodemus was first antagonistic, but he was a sincere person. I mean, the guy that plays Nicodemus there, phenomenal job. And again, I just want to say about that whole series, I hope the second season, which I think is coming out soon, is just as good as the first season because they have done such a beautiful job. Dallas Jenkins, thanks for that, Harold. Um, They have done such a good job of painting what I consider to be a realistic and very attractive picture of Jesus. Um, yeah, I'm I'm sold out. I like it. I think it's fantastic. And uh, so in answer to your question, Peggy, it's a long way of saying, you know, hearts were hardened by a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation. And some of those seeds did eventually bear fruit, but it just took years where in the cases of people like Mary and some of the disciples where Jesus just says, follow me, and they follow, it took a while. It took a while. Okay, a couple more questions here. Um, Patty Ryan O'Connell writes, when it says the grace of God was on him, speaking of Jesus, is that the same kind of grace we receive because of Christ's sacrifice? Why would Jesus need to receive undeserved and unmerited grace? Okay, great question here. The word grace is a word that has a sort of breadth of meaning. We can talk about grace in the sense of graceful or they had, uh, she possessed a certain grace. Um, so when it's referencing the grace that was upon Jesus, I, you don't give a, Patty, I'm sorry, you don't give a specific paragraph or, or page here, but when it's speaking about the grace that Jesus conducted himself with or whatever the specific thing is that you're referencing here, whatever it is it means, it cannot mean, of course, that he has the grace of undeserved favor and merit upon him, because grace is that which is given to the undeserving, the unworthy. And when the Father looked out upon Jesus, he said, um, with complete transparency and accuracy, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus can say that about me and about you too. This is my beloved daughter as well, in whom I am well pleased. But that's only because of the grace of Jesus. And so, um, I'm not specifically, I'm not sure specifically what you're referencing there, but whatever the way that grace was being used there, 
it would have been in one of those other senses of the word. Okay, Lathia Keener says, please explain why the genealogy of Jesus is traced through Joseph. I believe I read in Desire of Ages that Mary is a daughter of David. Lots of questions about the genealogy of Jesus. And the interesting thing is, is that when you read the genealogy in Matthew, Matthew chapter one, and then you read the genealogy in the opening chapters of Luke, they're actually not identical. And scholars have noted, particularly scholars of Matthew have noted that, and I preached on this in my series at the Kingscliff Church, Incomparable, that the specific genealogy that Matthew communicates in Matthew chapters sort of one through verse 16 is a purposefully um, curated and stylized um, uh, genealogy. It doesn't mean it's not accurate, but it, it is telling a specific story, and we don't have to wonder about what that story is, because Matthew tells us. He says there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the captivity, and 14 from the captivity to Babylon. He's telling a very Jewish story in a Jewish context there. Incidentally, he also starts that genealogy not with Adam, but with Abraham, right? So this is a very Jewish telling of the genealogy of Jesus. Incidentally, when Luke tells that same uh, genealogy, he begins with Adam, right? Because he's telling a slightly different story. The point here that both Matthew and Luke are making is that Jesus was fully human. He was fully human. He was an actual literal descendant of all of the people that are listed there. And um, he was the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was also a son of David. He was a son of Abraham. Jesus' genealogy is not like a, a mystery or a code. Let me just take a quick drink here. It's not like a mystery or a code to be unlocked. It's a portrait to be appreciated. Wow, look at all of the different kinds of people, and some of them, let's be honest, not so savory characters that made up the family lineage of Jesus. And uh, that should give all of us hope that we can look at it and say, um, yeah, I guess I'll probably be all right too with my um, family tree of less than savory characters. Okay, a couple more questions and then I'll interact a little bit here and uh, we'll close it down. <clears throat> okay, here we go. This is from Terry Hobbs. Terry says, I would like to know where all the insights into Jesus' early life comes from. Are there more books that were left out of the Bible, or is most of what Ellen White shares speculative? I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, but I'm being converted through the teachings. Hallelujah, Terry. I just want to understand how these insights came about. Okay, Terry, I want, Terry, I want to recommend to you, if you haven't already watched the uh, program that I did this morning, where Ty Gibson shows up as a guest, I would strongly encourage you to watch that one. It was program, I think it's number nine, on chapter eight, the Passover visit. Watch that one, because I actually asked that question specifically of Ty with regards to Ellen White's um, extra-biblical disclosures about Jesus' Passover visit and his childhood, and I thought Ty's answer was absolutely incredible. Um, as I mentioned in the day before that, I think there's really two ways to approach this material that is consistent with the trajectory of Scripture but is not expressly communicated in Scripture. And I think if you are like myself and perhaps others on this Q&A, if you're an inveterate reader of Ellen White, if you have soaked your mind in her reading and in Scripture such that you are persuaded that she had a prophetic insight, great. I, I support that. That's where I'm personally at. 
good for you. But don't, Terry, feel like you have to have that same level of confidence that I do. That would be an unrealistic expectation. All I would say to you is, just imagine that Ellen White is using her own imagination, right? She's allowing scripture to inform her own imagination about the things that she saw. And especially as a new, uh, a newly exposed person to Seventh-day Adventism and to Ellen White, that's the way forward. And let me just read you what she herself says about this. This is on page 88 of Desire of Ages, page 83 if you have one of the original um, versions. She says, It would be well for us, it would be good for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. Well, this is really cool. This is really cool because... Exactly as Chad is saying here on the Instagram feed, this is imagination that is steered by the Holy Spirit and informed by Scripture. There is absolutely nothing at all wrong with allowing the sanctified imagination to run a little wild. I mean, I think we all do this, right? Like when I think of the story of Zacchaeus or when I think of the calling of the disciples or when I think of the crucifixion of Jesus, I, in my own mind's eye, let my imagination go there and I fill in some of the blanks and Hopefully I'm doing so with accuracy. I mean, just a moment ago, we were talking about the Chosen series. Clearly what Dallas Jenkins and other script writers there are doing is they're filling in a lot of blanks. They're following the same trajectory, the same line of scripture. So the story is consistent, but they are allowing um, some of those gaps to be filled in and informed by other passages of scripture. And Ty does a great job of talking about how when you have this sort of full-orbed biblical literacy, it allows you to see little hints, suggestions, innuendos in the passage that if you go there and you sort of look through that, that innuendo, you look through that suggestion, there is a depth that's available to us that we can safely surmise uh, that something like this happened. And again, I'm not being dogmatic, especially if I'm dealing with somebody who's fresh to Ellen White and fresh in their exposure to her, I would never be dogmatic and say, look, this lady said it, so you have to believe it. I would just say, hey, listen, I think it sounds really cool the way she's saying it. It makes a lot of sense to me. But at the end of the day, this is the standard. At the end of the day, scripture is the standard. And my advice to you, Terry, and others like you would simply be, don't run ahead. Just, just take this meal one bite at a time. Let your appreciation of Scripture, let your appreciation of Ellen White, let your appreciation, of course, what they're all about is your appreciation of Jesus, just grow. Baby steps, baby steps. There will be plenty of time for you to be an inveterate follower of Jesus, an inveterate reader of Scripture, and a, a deeply committed reader of Ellen White. There'll be plenty of time for that. For now, just enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey. And I know that too often in... Um, Christian circles, we don't do that. We want people to be here right now. And uh, that's unrealistic and it's unsympathetic and it's absurd, frankly. And so um, I wouldn't say speculative. I would say imaginative, Terry. All right, I'm gonna take one more question here. And um, uh, let's see. Oh, let's see. That wasn't a question. All right, I think I'm just going to stop there because the thing I thought was a question is not a question. <clears throat> Somebody says they can't follow along because the page numbers I use are a little different. All right, uh, let me just interact here. Has anybody got anything here? Any chance that the lives will be earlier since you're getting up at 
5 a.m. Mountain Time. <laughs> um, tomorrow morning, the live will be at 8 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. So tomorrow, back to 8. Do I have anything I'm doing tomorrow, babe? Do I have a big day tomorrow? What time is it now? 8.15? Yeah, we'll do it at 8 tomorrow. 8 o'clock tomorrow morning will be the live. Um, Nitro... USRNA says, I understand that the pinnacle of Christ's love for humanity and Satan's hatred for Christ were at the cross of Calvary, but why the flood? Oh, wow, okay. Well, first of all, I'm gonna give myself a little pass here, Nitro USRNA, because the flood is not addressed in the Desire of Ages. Um, I'll answer that question when we read through Patriarchs and Prophets together. Um, I actually do have an answer, but it's quite a long answer. The other thing I can say, and this will sound a little... Um, uh, self-promotional, but you can read my book, uh, God in Pain, which I've got here on the shelf, and I do talk a little bit about the flood there. Uh, or you can go read Ellen White's chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets on the Flood. Um, sorry, I am dodging your question a little bit, but I'm toward the end of the program here, and I don't want to go right hard into a question that's actually outside of the scope of the first eight chapters of Desire of Ages. So I hope you'll forgive me for that. Um, Brian Mitchell says, or somebody Mitchell says, what time is that Eastern time? I guess that would be... Um, uh, 10, 10 a.m., right? 8 o'clock my time, 10 o'clock Eastern time. Okay, beloved, this has been really fun. I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, we've taken some really good in-depth questions here, and I feel like every one of these questions was really, really good, very thoughtful. And uh, I hope you all are enjoying the DA with DA challenge. I do have... I do have... Um, I do have a surprise for you this coming week, and I'll only tell you this. Oh, somebody asked about the word of the day. Oh, I'm so glad, and I'll mention this again tomorrow. The word for today, for me, was lamb. Lamb. What I've been doing, if you haven't been following along, and probably most of you have, is I've been writing a summary, a one-word, so far single-syllable summary, of every chapter so far. And so now we have big, but... Dark, joy, sign, gift, growth, and then today's was lamb. I forgot to mention that. I'll mention that again tomorrow morning. But as I was saying, I, I do have a surprise this coming week. I don't yet know when it will be. Um, if I had to guess, I would guess it will be Thursday, but I, I don't know for sure. It might be Saturday but there's a surprise coming, and uh, I will only say uh, it is not 160-pound Ty Gibson again. It's not Ty Gibson again. It's a different kind of surprise, um, but it's a pretty cool one, and I'm super excited about it, and uh, I hope you all will tune in. Um, I'm going to close with prayer. God bless you all. I hope you have a great night. Let's just close with prayer, and thank God for being so awesome and so good. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for all of those that have tuned in to our first Q&A. I want to thank you for these excellent questions that we've received. And Father, at the end of the day, we don't look to a man or to a human author to answer our deepest, um, most pressing questions. We look to you. Father, we look to you. You are not only able to answer our questions, you are the answer. Didn't Jesus himself say, I am the way? the truth, and the life. And Father, that's what we need. We need to know how to live. We need to know what life to live. And we need to know the truth about living. 
And so, Father, I want to pray a special prayer for all those that are tuned in here. I pray this has been a blessing to them. I know it's been a blessing to me. And Father, now as those that are east of me get ready for bed, and as I get ready for bed, and those that are west of us might still be enjoying a little bit of um, leisure time. Father, help us just to every day have a deep, worshipful appreciation for how awesome you are and how much of a privilege it is to be your sons and your daughters by faith. Father, we receive your grace. We receive it by faith. And we want to thank you for the incredible plan of salvation that's not just saving us you know, for the hereafter, at some distant point in the future, Father, you want to save us today. You want to save our marriages. You want to save our relationships. You want to save our own minds. You want to save the way that we think about ourselves and the world around us. Father, please save us at some time in the future, but also save us today is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.